0: If you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17, uh, that's where we're going to uh, be tonight. Uh, It's page 984 in the church Bibles, and if you have a large print Bible, uh, it's page 1529, Matthew 17, and we're going to uh, look at verses 24 down to verse 27 of that chapter. This morning, we looked at Romans uh, 14 and 15, uh, and one of the disputable issues that we uh, mentioned was uh, how we vote in a general election. And of course, there is one in less than a month. Uh, However, however, we vote, one thing that all of us can take assurance of is that no matter what happens, Jesus Christ is Lord, He is King. Uh, He's not elected. There's no election for him, as we've just sung. Uh, God has appointed him to the highest place. We don't vote for Jesus. He is the king, uh, and our knee will bow before him, uh, whether we worship him or whether we choose to ignore him. And as we've looked at this chapter uh, of Matthew uh, over the last uh, couple of months, we have seen yet again that Jesus is the Son of God. He is truly man and he is truly God, the Messiah who has come to save us from our sins. But we have also seen in Matthew's gospel over and over again what it means to follow Jesus as our King. And this twin track of identity and discipleship is found throughout Matthew's gospel and in this passage that we see tonight because here in these few verses we see who Jesus is and what it means to be a follower of him in the world. And as we come to an election it's a a timely reminder of our identity in Christ and our responsibility as subjects of an earthly country. So both these things are true. I am a citizen of heaven But I am also a citizen of the United Kingdom. And both of those uh, citizenships give me responsibilities in how I live my life. And in this uh, short passage in Matthew, we see how both of those things can work out as we see that we are both sons of God and subjects of his kingdom and of a kingdom on earth as well. So let's see how that works in Matthew 17. Uh, from verse 24. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, "'Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax?' "'Yes, he does,' he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. "'What do you think, Simon?' he asked." From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not cause offense, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them. For my tax and yours. This is God's Word. As we first read this passage, we might think this is all about taxes. And in a sense, it is about taxes, but it's through the subject of taxes that Jesus makes what is a bigger point in this passage. And the first bigger point than how we pay our taxes is the simple truth, but very profound one, that Jesus is the Son of God. This passage teaches us that Jesus is the Son of God. How does it do that? Well, let's see. Well, in verse 24, we read about this temple tax. It was paid by Jewish men once a year, and it was to support the upkeep of the temple. It was a relatively new tax at this time, But the justification of the tax actually came from Exodus chapter 30 where the Jewish people after leaving Egypt were told to give financial offerings when there was a census. And there was a census every so often. The the men had to pay an offering and the offering was to help with the sacrificial system in Israel. This is how it's described in uh, Exodus chapter 30 and verse 16. They are told to receive the atonement money from the Israelites and use it for the service of the tent of meeting. So the money was collected and it was to be used for the service of the tent of meeting. Notice that because the tent tent of meeting was the precursor for the temple building which in addition of is what we read about here in Matthew's Gospel. So uh, the, the first temple was built by Solomon. That was destroyed. It was rebuilt. And here is the, a, a temple that was in a di- uh, had additional building onto the second one uh, that was built. The tent of meeting was the precursor to it. And that was what the money was to be used for. That's what they used to justify collecting this tax. In Matthew's day, the tax was two drachma, which was about uh, two, two days' wages. And Jesus and his disciples have been away for a while. And when they come back, the tax collectors come round to make sure that Jesus was going to pay his tax. It wasn't a Roman tax, so it could not be enforced, but it was expected by all upstanding Jewish men to pay. And so the tax, uh, the tax collectors asked, Peter, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? <laughs> I think what's going on here is really they're they're saying, you've just been away. We, we, we've seen you've come back and we haven't got our tax just yet. He is going to pay, isn't he? Well, Peter responds by saying Jesus does pay the temple tax. He may have seen Jesus pay it. Or he may just be avoiding uh, the tax collectors questioning Jesus being an upstanding gentleman if he doesn't know whether Jesus has paid it. But Jesus uses this episode to teach about who he is and who the disciples are. Notice the question in verse 25 that Jesus asks Peter. Obviously Jesus has heard what has been going on or knows. What do you think, Simon, he asked from whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? Kings of the earth uh, mean earthly rulers. Uh, now, in our country, we live in a democracy where uh, the taxes we pay don't go to an individual, but they go to uh, a body of people, the government or the parliament. And then they decide as a body, or rather the, the, the government decide, a small part of the parliament. Um, How those taxes are going to be spent. But in an absolute monarchy, which is what Jesus is really referring to here, the taxes that people paid went to the emperor or to the king. And Jesus is asking whether an absolute monarch would collect taxes from his own children or from others. And Peter answers with the obvious well, they'd collect taxes from other people. A a king is not going to charge taxes to his children, the royal family are exempt. In fact, it was only in the early 1990s that the royal family in our own country began to pay income tax. It's a bit like today, I suppose. If you owned a business, you're not going to charge your children uh, the, 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 the most that you could charge them. You'd freely give to them or you'd at least give them a discount. The children are exempt, Jesus says here. Well, we'll examine the miracle um, a little bit more shortly, but first notice how Jesus begins verse 27. He says, but so that we may not cause offence. And then he provides the way to pay the tax. So Jesus is only paying this tax so that offence is not caused, not because he has to. Do you notice that? He doesn't have to pay it, but he's saying, I'll pay it so as not to cause offence, What's he saying here? And it's important for us to grasp this because it does teach us about his identity. Whose temple is the temple? It's God's temple, isn't it? It's not the, the, te- the, 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 the priest's temple, or the, the, the Pharisee's temple, or anyone else's temple. The temple is God's temple. And if Jesus is exempt, as all children are, then can you see what he's claiming? He's claiming to be the son of God. In fact, elsewhere, Jesus calls the temple my father's house. So he's making a claim here. He's saying that he has a temple tax exemption because he is a child of God or the son of God. And as if to back up his words with actions, he performs this miracle with the fish. And it is a miracle. He hasn't said to Peter, go cast your line out. I reckon there's a fish there. No, this is a, a miracle, not a coincidence. Jesus, as God, who is in control of nature, directs a fish to be caught at just the right time. And it has just the right amount of money to pay Jesus's tax and Peter's. Yet again, this is more evidence that Jesus is God. More evidence on top of all the other evidence that is all over this gospel that shows that Jesus is God. It's quite a claim he makes here to say that he's exempt because he's God's son, but it's absolutely true. And we've seen it all through the gospels, haven't we? And here we see in word saying that he's exempt, and indeed, with the miracle of the fish, that Jesus is God with us. Jesus is God the Son. But there's more to this. Notice something else. Jesus has enough for two payments. There is four drachma and the tax is only two. There is enough for him and for Peter. And notice in verse 27 that he says, "...so that we," that is, you, Peter, and me, "...so that we may not cause offence. So the tax exemption is not just for Jesus, it is also for his disciples, who therefore must also be children of God. And that's the second lesson that we see here, that Jesus' disciples are God's children. Again, all through the scriptures, we can see how uh, God calls his people his children. Uh, In the Old Testament, in Isaiah, We read, but you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us or Israel acknowledge us, you, Lord, are our father, our redeemer from of old is your name. This is the people of God speaking. Although uh, they're not maybe acknowledged by the nation around them, God is the father of his people. Then in the Sermon on the Mount, we read in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called... Children of God. In the Lord's Prayer, how do we begin? It's our Father who is in heaven. We are children of God ourselves. Well, how do we become children of God? Well, this passage uh, actually comes right after the statement that Jesus made that he will be killed and rise from the dead. Notice that in uh, verses 22 and 23 of Matthew chapter 17. And I see, there's a link here between this incident of Jesus providing for Peter's debt to the temple and Jesus predicting his death and resurrection. What's the link? Well, the link is this. The, the temple was the place where sacrifice was made for sin. And the Jewish people paid the temple tax so that the animals could be bought that would be used to, pay the, uh, the pay, to be made to sacrifice for sin. As Jesus provides enough for him and Peter, we're pointed to the fact that Jesus' provision pays for a greater sacrifice for sin. Not some animals in a temple, but the sacrifice of himself. In paying for Peter's debt, Jesus is showing how he himself pays the price for his disciples' sin. And we see here two elements of how Jesus saves us from sin. First of all, he saves us from sin by fulfilling the law on our behalf. We see him as he pays this temple tax. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, we read this. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, That we might receive adoption to sonship. What Paul writes there in Galatians is that Jesus perfectly obeys all of God's law for us on our behalf because we fail in it, and he pays for our sin in part by fulfilling that law for us. He pays what's required, including the temple tax. That's the first part. But the the, the fuller element of how he uh, saves us from sin is that he dies in our place. He was perfect and he died in the place of imperfect sinners. He pays the debt that we have to God for our sin in full. When Jesus, in fact, cries out, it is finished, it literally means paid in full. He paid the penalty for our sin. In order to be in a relationship with God, we have to be perfect. And of course, none of us are because we sin. And if we sin once, we can never be perfect again because we're always going to be tainted with sin. And so there's a sin debt that has to be paid in order to be right with God. But because that price is perfection, it can never be paid. And so we're judged for our sin. But here in the Gospels, we read how Jesus dies in our place for our sins. He pays the price that we deserve to pay. And as Jesus provides the money in the fish, he is pointing to a greater provision, a full and final payment, a sacrifice for sin, full and final, so that we could be called children of God. Or in the language of Galatians 4, receive adoption to sonship be adopted into God's family. And we read in 1 John at the beginning of our service tonight that it's because of the love that God has lavished on us that we are called children of God. What a comfort to know that Jesus pays the price for our sin so we don't have to. we're going to sing this song later on, but it sums it up uh, very nicely. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. It's paid in full. We are children of God if we have faith in Jesus Christ. So Jesus is God's son. We are God's children. And Jesus has said his children are tax exempt. Well, in terms of the Temple tax, at least. But could we take it further? Could we say that, well, we are citizens of God's kingdom, and so if I'm a citizen of God's kingdom, on earth I really am, if you like, abroad, I'm a foreigner, and when I go to other countries, I don't pay tax in that country because I'm not a citizen of that country, so therefore, can I say I don't have to pay taxes, I am tax exempt? Well, maybe some of you may be saying, preach it, brother, but that is not what the Bible really teaches. As much as you may or wish I could say, yes, don't pay taxes. Jesus shows us that although we are sons of God, we are still subjects while we're here on earth. Here he shows us how we are to live as subjects in this world whilst at the same time belonging to his kingdom. And that is we are to be model citizens on earth. And this is where verse 27 is the key. Jesus pays the temple tax so that we may not cause offence. If you remember from this morning, offence means a stumbling block, something that trips people up or blocks their way. And if Jesus and his disciples did not pay the temple tax, something which was not fundamentally wrong for them not to do, it would be an unnecessary distraction from the work of the kingdom. Now, Jesus did have many conflicts with religious leaders. When something was fundamentally wrong, he stood up and he was willing to fight. But when something was not wrong, he submitted to the human authorities. And for Jesus, this is immense humility, isn't it? Jesus was the owner of the temple. He was the sovereign and is the sovereign god of the universe and yet he made himself obedient to the laws of the time peter who is involved here writes about us being model citizens in 1 peter chapter 2 uh, listen to what he says and how it matches with what jesus speaks of here dear friends i urge you as foreigners and exiles To abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. We are to live lives that a good citizen would live. So good, in fact, that our good deeds cause people to think of God and give him glory. And this includes honoring the emperor, or in our case, the government of the day, whoever is elected. Now, when something is fundamentally wrong, we are to take our stand. Issues around abortion, euthanasia come to mind. We are right to stand up and say, this is wrong. And even to not obey the laws of the land in regard to them. But where there is no absolute right or wrong, or where we just don't agree or dislike, we are to be model citizens. And this is immensely practical, isn't it? Pay your taxes. Even if you, would, you think the tax rate should be lower, we are to pay our taxes. Drive the speed limit. Have a DBS check when working with children or vulnerable adults. Jump through the hoops that need to be jumped through. Have appropriate health and safety processes and procedures in place, even if they're annoying and frustrating and we think they're silly. We need to have, uh, live our lives individually and as a body of Christians that are so good that people look at us and it points to God. And there are so many other laws you could just go on and on, isn't there? But don't let these things be a stumbling block to others. Let them see us living lives that are good in our nation. Just as an illustration of this that came up in my own life recently, I I was playing a a squash game with someone in a a friendly, uh, and I pay a subscription to a a league. And I was playing uh, someone who is also in the league. And we booked the court, and normally when you book the squash court, you have to pay for the court. But when I um, was on the phone, they didn't take any payment for the court, and I was in a rush. I got up to the squash court, we played our game, and the friend that I played with said to me, "Uh, well, actually, you could take this as a league game if you want. You don't need to pay the full price. If you just let the squash uh, league chairman know, I'm sure that uh, you don't have to pay. And I was thinking about this, and I thought, that just doesn't sound right. This isn't a league game, it was a friendly game. Uh, so I, had to, I, th- I thought I should pay for this squash court. And when I went down uh, and paid for the court and I said to the man at the desk, I've, I've, I've played this game and I definitely haven't paid. Uh, I, I think I should. Uh, he said, I've never had this happen before in my whole life. <laughs> it was an interesting thing. But I, it would have been easy and I was seriously tempted, I have to say, to just go home and not pay for my squash court. But the right thing to do, even though we can get away with it, would have been to pay. It's just an illustration of what we're talking about here. Live upstanding good lives. Go, bend over backwards to be good. And when we do this, when we have to take a stand, we'll be far more respected if we are obeying in the things that we can. Live in such a way, and this kind of summarizes this point, live in such a way that you are a signpost, not a stumbling block. A signpost to Jesus Not a stumbling block that blocks the vision of him. We live in a a time of of great confusion. And being a signpost to an infinitely, infinitely greater king than anyone that we are going to elect is a most wonderful way of applying this text, isn't it? Regardless of what happens in our country, we are part of a greater kingdom where King Jesus reigns and will forever, where we are God's children. And until we arrive uh, before his face, where in 1 John that passage continues, we will see him as he is, until we get there, let us spend our time here as foreigners and exiles being signposts that point to Jesus in every area of our lives, just like Jesus did. Well, as we close, we're going to come around uh, the Lord's Supper shortly. Uh, But we're going to remember, before we come to the Lord's table, uh, the price that was paid for our sin. Uh, We're going to stand and sing the song that I mentioned uh, in the message. Uh, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Let's stand and let's sing in worship of him.